So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello, everyone. I'm excited for our conversation today with Dr. Ashley Bohr, our co-host. Instead of me introducing you, Ashley, because I feel I'm going to mess it up a little bit, maybe I can turn the mic over to you and you can introduce yourself to the audience, please. Sure. Even though it would be an honor to be misintroduced by you, Justin. <laughs> I'm Ashley Bohr. I'm the, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I'm currently assistant professor of gender and peace studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And I have a concurrent appointment in the gender studies department. By training, I'm a philosopher. I got my PhD in 2016 from DePaul University. And my recent book is on the relationship between Marxism and intersectionality. And you can pick it up at Columbia University Press. Great. So when we were planning this podcast, we had all these conversations about pedagogy and how we wanted to formulate what we wanted to say and also who we wanted to speak to. And then it sort of occurred to us that because we've been thinking about this a lot, we should probably interview ourselves. And I know from the students that I've met who've been in your classes that you have a, a unique way and a unique approach to, to, to pedagogy. So I think the first thing I would love to know about is where did you get those convictions and what are those convictions? What sort of life experiences, classroom experiences, or other inspirations you draw from? Yeah, thanks for the question. I was in graduate school when I started to do a lot of social justice community organizing. And I think that experience, you know, being out in the street and being in community really shaped the way I approach you know, what I'm doing in the classroom and why I'm doing it and, and how I talk to my students. So it was, there was like this really interesting experience of being in a, in a PhD program where the canon was filled with like stodgy, old, dead, white men day after day after day after day. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sort of walking into a really different kind of experience that was based in like horizontality and and community building and embodiment and connection in the social justice work that I was doing. And really being an activist opened my, my worldview to the idea that we could be doing education in a totally different way. That education could, at least more than it that it is now, like fulfill its promise, pushing back against inequalities and hierarchies and really to be able to use critical thinking toward the horizon of emancipation. Sure. Yeah. 
You know, you, you mentioned this idea of being in community, and I know that you gave us some words around it, horizontality, embodiment. How about for those folks who may have not had the opportunity to be in a space like that, or maybe they want to know a bit more about what you mean when you say being in community. Can you unpack that, talk about that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So broadly, I think that a lot of the way that education is done right now in the U.S. is on this model of a kind of professor who is a disembodied supreme knower who relates, like fills up her students with all of this important information that she has gleaned through official channels and then punishes students who who can't immediately uptake that information and then regurgitate it back to her. And by contrast, I think when activists are engaging in popular education projects, there's a really different model and a really different philosophy that's about honoring the knowledge and the experiences that everyone, the so-called students or and the organizers and community members, really honoring the unique contributions that each person has and brings to the table. And to think about knowledge as a collective process of co-creation and, and expansion of ideas and discourses and considerations that really themselves move away from a punitive or a hierarchical idea of knowledge and that open that open all of us up to thinking about education as like a process of of expansion and growth even for the so-called teacher or professor so then what does that look like for you in the classroom i think one of the things that i am quite interested in in the classroom is novelty and newness and seeing how different kinds of activities can really push us to see or highlight different aspects of the texts or the phenomena that we're looking at. And so things can look a variety of different different ways in the classroom. I generally use a flipped classroom, what's called a flipped classroom model, where students aren't coming to class in order to master material, right? And to to hear me talk about what I think the important pieces of the text are or to get first exposure to content of of the texts. Mm -hmm. But really, they're coming to class in order to engage in some like deep critical discussion about the text in ways that often brings up new, new ideas or new interpretations for me. And so I really think about myself less as a teacher and more as a facilitator. So how can I ask provocative questions? How can I set a tone in the classroom that is about investigation and and excitement and engaged listening and respectful but also generative disagreement? And so I really organize my facilitation of the classroom space around how can I instantiate each one of those values or goals, you know, in the assignments that we're doing or in the the conversations that we're having or the activities. So one of my favorite activities that I picked up from the great, great social movement facilitators at Beautiful Trouble is an activity that's called a spectrogram. It doesn't work quite as well online, though I figured out a way to to adapt it for online teaching. But broadly, I'll 
what I do is I'll pick up, you know, either an argument of the, of the text that we've read for today or dense passage from it, and I'll read it to them and I will ask them to line themselves up in an actual like sort of single file line from absolute, absolute disagreement to like, this is the truest thing that has ever been said. And in order to, you know, figure out where in relationship to their classmates, they should stand. They have to have lots of conversations about like, well, I disagree with it for this reason. How important is that reason to you? Why is it so important? Mm. Uh, By the end of the assignment, students have had multiple one-on-one conversations with each other, not just about their positions, but also about how important those positions are to them and why they matter in order to then sort of distribute themselves along a line. And then the second part of this activity is I always ask the people at the polls to explain their logic and reasoning to the class. And then I give students an opportunity to move around, right? Mm. To, to hear an argument that they've maybe not heard, heard before or engage with, you know, an interpretation or hear someone's experience that maybe they haven't considered. And then to really normalize the idea of changing one's mind, that the important mm. thing isn't kind of taking up a position and defending it, but listening to other people, their perspectives, their ideas, taking them in, really considering whether, whether or how that changes your interpretation, and then potentially, though not always, shifting. Shout out to Beautiful Trouble. Who are they? What is that? Is that a resource for us? Beautiful Trouble is a really, really beautiful, excellent network of nonviolent direct action trainers. Um, So they work in the social justice movement. But so much of being an organizer is about facilitating interactions and meetings and conversations and growth and change. So I really often when I'm thinking about needing new classroom activities or approaching a really intractable problem in the classroom, I'm much more likely to go to social movement resources for facilitators than I am to kind of university pedagogy. I think that generally some of these social movement facilitation techniques and websites are much more tuned into how to undo systematic structures of power that emerge in a, in a space like a conversation space sure. than the majority of especially mainstream higher education pedagogy training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I like the idea where you're mentioning where you're sort of uh, allowing students to change their mind after listening and actually pushing them to do so. And we know that's pretty much opposite of what we're seeing in popular discourse, people getting entrenched in one side or the other. How has that worked for the students? Have you had some pushback? How do you really ingrain this sort of, um, I don't know, stepping into the unknown and and being okay to reevaluate your own positions? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, students adopt the tone that their instructor sets in the classroom. Sure, yeah. And so I try to set a tone of like, reevaluation and um, assessment and change and, you know, saying when I don't know something, saying when I was wrong, oh, I said something last class that actually, uh, you know, I I went back and looked up later and and I, you know, misread that figure or, you know, said something to you that that was wrong. And I apologize for that. You know, like that kind of modeling of change and growth in the classroom, I think is really important 
precisely because the dominant understanding that I think university students walk into the classroom with is that their professors are, you know, learned powers, uh, figures of power and authority who have all the answers and, you know, who evaluate me. So I have to please them and like say what, what, what I think they want. Yeah. And I just don't think that model is, is particularly useful. And so I try to, in the way that I talk to them and the way that I explain what we're doing and why we're doing it, is to shift the tone of the classroom. So I also do tons and tons of evaluations. I ask them how activities worked for them. I ask them about what they need in the classroom and whether or not they're getting it. And I have them do some like quite frank assessments of me mm -hmm. during the course of the semester. And then I talk to them about like, okay, this is what the result of the assessment said. And this is the way I'm gonna shift or change my practice in relationship to you all. And then we'll talk about this in a few weeks and see if that worked. Mm -hmm. I think they see me responding to them, their feedback, their experience, their understanding of how the classroom is going and making shifts and changes and being responsive to that. And I think that really sets, you know, sets the tone for how they interact, not only with me, but with each other. One of the questions I have, though, is you've seen that studies have shown that student evaluations sometimes are, are much harder on people of color and women in that way, it's almost counterintuitive to open yourself up for more evaluation. Especially we know that student evaluation sometimes is sort of a reflection of what they're anticipating from some of these older models. Sure, that's definitely true. The kind of feedback that women, people of color, non-binary people are likely to get from students is often a reflection of systems of power rather than yeah. working against them. But I think that is also partially about the way questions are asked and the service to which they are put. You know, mm. these internal evaluations that I do with my students in the classroom, first of all, ask super different questions than the kinds of university-imposed, you know, assessment questions. Yeah. And they're not used in any punitive way against me. They're, they're used in order for me to understand what my students are experiencing and even in the cases where I have received deeply sexist comments from my students, mm. that's also helpful for me to know and way more helpful for me to know in week three than at the end of the semester when evaluations are being used and deployed and collected by, by my bosses in order to determine whether or not I keep my job. So it's not that that evaluation necessarily removes the danger of students having harmful perspectives, mm -hmm. but it does help me orient myself to what I'm going to do in the semester in order to, to handle or relate to that. And I would always much rather know, right? Like I would rather know if my students are where they're coming from so I can meet them where they are at in order to hopefully transform some of those harmful behaviors and practices. Yeah. Well, we're right now in the middle of a semester. So I'm curious if you'd like to share maybe one of the, the beautiful moments recently that you've had in any of your classes and maybe kind of break it down in terms of what you're trying to achieve, what the outcome was and what it's done for the class. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I think as everyone listening probably knows, the semester is a very atypical one. I'm totally online with my students this semester uh, because I have 
a health condition that puts me at heightened risk. But most of my students are are in person and most of their classes are in person. And so that's like presented its own set of weirdnesses and challenges and necessary sort of adaptations over the course of the semester. But just last week, we got a university-wide email. Faculty received an email from the provost saying that students were experiencing and reporting such heightened, heightened, intense levels of anxiety that, that instructors were encouraged to think about ways to, to shift their assignments or expectations in order to like, decrease a high rate of clinically assessed anxiety, depression, and, and suicidality among, among students. And I had already picked up on this vibe many weeks before we got this email. Mm-hmm. Also because I talk to my students and I ask them how they're doing and I like hear feedback about how they're, how they're coping. And so two weeks ago, a- around what would have been our midterm time, I like got the sense that my students were sort of twitchy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I asked them why and what they needed in order to succeed more in the semester. And they told me very clearly that what they needed was a loosening of deadlines, what they needed was lowering the amount of reading that we were doing, and Mm -hmm. that if we were going to keep all of the assignments for the semester, they actually needed some more individualized support and some asynchronous time to just work on those assignments because they were working more slowly than they were in normal semesters. And I said, okay, let's do that. Yeah. And so when I got this email from my students and I shared it with them. I was talking to them in class the other day and I asked them if they needed any further adjustments or were still feeling overwhelmed and stressed. And my students said, no, but you were the only professor I had this semester who made changes in relationship to our our mental health. And it was really impactful to hear that my colleagues, that professors are witnessing such intense amounts of of student distress and are either not picking up on those signals because they're not attuned to how their students are feeling or they are understanding that this is happening and are just sort of proceeding with business as usual. And I think both of those responses are not sufficient in order to you know, make good on, on the promises of the classroom. Like our students are whole people and part of also what they are learning, I think, in their interactions with us is what they should do or what they might do in the future when they're in a position of authority. And I hope to be modeling and teaching them that they should be interacting with people as human beings first and that any yeah. sort of assessment, you know, like quantitative or qualitative assessment of their of content is quite secondary. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate that. It's uh, it's been a tough semester, I think, for everyone, and it, it is a bit shocking that we um, that just meeting people like or or other human beings going through things is not the norm, but actually the exception. So it's a bit shocking there. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's also a hard semester for us. I understand that there is a lot of discussion around how students are responding to the pandemic, but I think there's also like a very serious lack of comparable focus on how faculty are responding to the pandemic. And and every faculty person that I know is under incredible intensive stress for both personal and professional reasons. 
And I think one of the ways that institutions perpetuate this really toxic model for students is also complete negation that faculty members are also whole embodied people with lives and we're not just brains in a vat spitting out spitting out knowledge we're not we're not teaching machines and we're not research machines either mm. let's shift gears here a little bit ashley and you know we've been able to spend these handful of weeks talking to some really amazing people about a lot of the things that that you just mentioned and the concerns that we've been thinking about you know, thinking about why you started the series, why we started the series, and then going through these handful of weeks, what are your thoughts and reflections on the interviews, how the process has gone, just overall the whole um, this whole endeavor? Yeah, I think it's been super exciting to talk to all of these really wonderful people bringing in different techniques and different perspectives into the classroom that are all pushing against the expectations of our profession and our disciplines. So for me, I think this experience has been both enlightening and also like, I don't know, energizing, like mm -hmm. the, the sort of reconfirmation that, you know, no matter how much work I do in pedagogy, there is always so many people doing incredibly different, super interesting, exciting things that I want to hear more about and incorporate into my classroom in new ways. So I think for me, the, the experience of trying to, to bring together lots of different people engaged in this political project of re-envisioning the classroom has felt deeply exciting in the midst of a semester where I desperately, desperately needed some added energy, you know, from yeah. external places. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ashley, for your insights and your thoughts. And we'll talk to everyone really soon. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.